0: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history this week on the agenda. You're going to be having a chat, an automobile race of all things. I mean, you know... Half, here at Half Past History, we're well known for our love of sports, especially oh, you bloody motorsports. sports, get on the cars. I mean, we're all proper, proper petrol heads here, aren't we? No, I mean not at all. I, I don't really like car racing very much, but I do bloody love history, and so do you, hopefully. And seeing as this uh, this race took place in 1908, it's definitely eligible for a, a second look at here. Look at it here with Half Past History. Um, now, this race right took place, as I say, hundred years ago. Six cars raced from New York right to Paris. However, they travelled westward. Wouldn't have been much of a race if they'd gone east. Basically, it would have been, you know, first one to get down to the docks and on a ship across the Atlantic. It wouldn't have been much of a race. No, they raced westward, right? It took the competitors, well, some of them anyway. uh, It took them across the continental United States, over the Pacific, into Asia, and then right across to Europe. And the reason that I say some of them here is because... You won't be surprised to learn that not everyone made it. I mean, it's 1908. Cars were pretty newfangled bits of technology back then, and there aren't really roads to drive them on. So some of the teams dropped out at, you know, various points and for various reasons. You know, we'll talk about all of this. Some of the reasons were very understandable. The car breaking down and things like that. Damage, wear and tear, that sort of thing. Um, Other reasons were perhaps um, a little less. Understandable. Things like deciding to sell the car en route is that's always going to be a problem when trying to complete a race Um, or being disqualified for cheating after loading the race car on a train. That actually happened. Thought, you know, thought they'd catch up a little bit by putting the car on a train and, you know, zooming ahead that way. But look, ultimately, there was a winner. Um, after plenty of thrills and spills, someone was indeed crowned the, uh, crowned the victor, as we'll get to. But before then, i would tell you what, all sorts of nonsense, all sorts of silliness to get across here. Don't you worry about it. This race was full of misadventure and hopeless bungling. You love to hear it. Um, much like, in fact, the 1904 Olympic Marathon, episode 48, Get Across It. One of the best episodes I've ever done, I reckon. Uh, it was an absolute schmuzzle, this race, just like that one. Uh, and in fact, it was alert listener Eric Whedon who sent in this topic, uh, the 1908 New York to Paris race, after having listened to the marathon episode and thinking, well, here's a, if if Riley likes covering bloody, you know, stupid races from the early 20th century, I tell you what, here's, I've got one for him. So cheers very much, Eric. Good on you. More ridiculous racing history from over 100 years ago. Who knew, who knew that the first decade of the 1900s would be such a, a rich vein of comedy for, uh, for the history of races? Anyway, let's get to it. Let's get underway. Have a chat about this 19, uh, 1908 race from New York to Paris. Here we go. We're going all the way back. We're going all the way back to, you will be surprised to learn, <coughs> 1908, which is when the 1908 race from New York to Paris actually took place. Actually, you know what? Let's go back another year. We'll go back a year before that to 1907 uh, and talk about another big automobile race that kind of inspired this one. Uh, this was the Peking to Paris race. It took place in 1907 uh, and also had plenty of ridiculous stuff happen in it as well. Uh, one of the drivers, and a guy whose name was uh, Charles Goddard, uh, he had no money. He had to borrow fuel off of the other cars in the race in order to finish and was arrested for fraud halfway through the journey. Uh, Outside of that, some of the cars had to be pulled by horses and donkeys when they got bogged down and stuck. And one of the cars, um, which apparently only had three wheels, got completely stuck in the Gobi Desert. They couldn't rescue the car. And those who were driving it were very, very lucky to be rescued. They they nearly died of exposure in the middle of the desert. But the whole thing, the 1907 Peking to Paris race, it was won by an Italian prince of all things. An Italian prince won the race. Uh, and he managed to win the race even after having taken a detour from Moscow to St. Petersburg so he could have dinner one night with some mates. Anyway, it was this Italian prince who ended up winning it. And uh, you'll never guess what his prize was. His prize, as he crossed the finish line, was a bottle of champagne. About 100 bucks down at, you know, the Dan Murphy's bottle That was his prize. Anyway... The Peking to Paris race, absolutely absurd, it was. But the next, the next year, 1908, much bigger race has been organised and a much more, and a, a, a race with much higher stakes as well, because this time, rather than just a bottle of champers, one thousand US dollars is on the line as a prize here. Not too bad, particularly back then, 1908, quite a sizable sum. Um, but on top of this, there was also a lot more publicity. The Peking to Paris race, it had been, it had been reasonably well publicized uh, because it had, principally it had been run along a telegraph route right between the two cities and journalists traveled with the cars. And so there, were, there was a little bit of reporting on, on how the, the race went. But in 1908, this race is a little different because its main sponsors were Le Matin. And the New York Times, two major newspapers in both France and the United States, respectively. And these newspapers brought daily updates on the race throughout its duration. So we not only have a very good picture of what happened, but also even back then, people were following along. You know, I mean, this was on the front page of the New York Times every day. So people were following this race with great interest. Anyway. Early 1908 uh, in February, six cars assembled in New York on the 12th, on the 12th of February 1908, these six cars, they get ready on the streets of New York, uh, ready to set off. There were supposed to be 13, uh, but seven of them pulled out for various reasons before the race began. And so only six of them actually set off. Uh, the route that they were going to take would, uh, would take them from New York across to San Francisco, so right across the, tra- the, um, the, uh, the, con- the continental United States. Uh, from San Francisco they would then put the cars onto ships and sail north to Alaska right because obviously there wasn't there just wasn't a way to drive to Alaska at this point in history um once they were once they're up in Alaska they would then uh, drive across the Bering Strait right this body of water that separates um, uh, Russia from Alaska the plan was to actually drive across it right in the middle of the winter and uh, then you know once they're in Russia drive across Siberia into Europe and then, you know, finish in Paris. And that was going to be the whole race. So you might already be seeing some issues here, but no worries. Let's press on. We'll get to these issues in due course. But as I say, six cars in, in, uh, in February in New York, uh, and let, let's meet the teams. There are three of them that are French, one American, one Italian, and one German. The French cars were a uh, De Dion a Motobloc and a Cesare Nordung. although uh, don't bother remembering that last one the last name is pretty relevant you'll you'll see one in a second the american car was a Thomas Flyer uh, the italian was a Brixia Züst and the german one was a Protoss now none of these are really sort of car brands that we know in the modern era but you know back then they didn't have a, you know they weren't they weren't cutting about in a Toyota Hilux they weren't Going off road in their bloody Range Rovers and their Jeeps. So these are the these are the the names of the brands uh, or the companies or the you know the, the manufacturers of cars back then. Um, oh, and before we start, by the way, while we're talking about these teams, guess who's driving the motorblock? block? Uh, you won't believe this: none other than Charles Goddard, the bloke who had borrowed fuel and was arrested in the Peking to Paris race. He's back again, so keep an eye on him. Um, he had never even driven a car before the Peaking to Paris race, and now he's back for another go uh, in the New York to Paris. So as I say, keep an eye on him because we'll be talking more about him later. Anyway, all the cars, they line up in New York City in uh, in front of a crowd of, I mean, by all accounts, I couldn't believe this, a quarter of a million people, 250,000 people apparently lined the streets to see these cars off. They assembled in the cold winter air to wave them all off. And a quarter past 11 in the morning, the starter's gun went off and the cars off, well, they, I was going to say, you know, off they zoomed, but they didn't really because it's 1908 and cars back then didn't really zoom anywhere, not as we know them to zoom today. So they began moving, I suppose. Uh, They began moving down the street and the the race was underway. The cars laden down with their three-man crews and hundreds and hundreds of litres of fuel each. They were carrying hundreds of litres of petrol in order to, you know, keep the cars Again, not on the road, but you understand, driving um, as they made their way towards San Francisco. Now, no one at this point in history has ever, ever driven across the United States in winter. The record for a transcontinental journey in a car at this point was 12 days, and that was in good weather. But our intrepid heroes, they've set off in winter, right? February, dead of winter. But they don't care at all. They, they, they care not a bit for this minor detail. I mean, one of them, uh, this Norwegian fellow, right? His name was Hans Hendrik Hansen. He claimed to have already sailed solo to the North Pole before this race, a dubious claim at best. But he said that he would make it to Paris with his team or that, in his words, their bodies will be found inside the car. So they don't care that they're driving through the freezing cold winter in these, you know, in these ancient cars. Well, I guess they weren't ancient by their terms, but you understand what I mean. Off they go, through the streets of New York, bravely setting off on this legendary journey, looking to write their names into automobile history by courageously undertaking this monumental journey ahead in their mighty machines until they got out of New York City and ran into snowbanks, which stopped them in their tracks. Nice. So, yeah, they had to get out of their cars, they had to use sticks to check the depth of the snow in front of them, and then put planks down on top of the snow in order to, you know, get some traction and drive over it. Absolutely ridiculous. This is on day one. Day one of the race, as soon as they get to the city limits, they're out there bloody having to, you know, poke about like old men in the snow. Um, so, you know, it's an all—it's already gone a little bit to pot. And it only gets worse from there for one of the teams because um, before the first day was even over, one of the cars had dropped out. Remember the Césaire Nodin? Remember them when I mentioned before? Do you remember them? Because you shouldn't. Mate, I specifically told you not to remember them because there's no point because they quit the race at around the 150 kilometer mark. Before the first day was even finished, they were out. The other cars did continue on, though. You know, there's only five of them now. It's been winnowed, the field's been winnowed down already. But uh, as they continued out of New York City, you know, they got stuck in snow drifts and swamps and had to be dragged out by teams of horses when they were, you know, when they got bogged down and, and bought bucketfuls of petrol from hardware shops as they continued to drive, you know, driving from before sunrise until after sunset. And to begin with, uh, this race was a bit more like a convoy. There was actually a sense of camaraderie between the teams. They'd take turn leading the way through the snow um you know drive together stop together uh spend the nights uh repairing and working on their cars you know the wear and the tear from the journey and also amusingly emptying the radiator of all the liquid that was in there so it didn't freeze overnight because antifreeze at this point wasn't used in cars it was mainly used in explosives um but uh you know this sense of camaraderie didn't last too long. And as the cars began to make their journey across across the American Midwest, the good feelings between the races started to disintegrate. And a lot of this was to do with what was happening to the American team, right? As the five cars went from town to town, it was the Thomas Flyer and its crew that got the most support from the locals. Now, obviously, this makes sense because, you know, the American car is on home soil. But for instance, if it got stuck, right, people would rush to its rescue with horses to come and drag it out of the ditch or ravine or swamp or whatever it was in. Whereas if a non-American car got stuck, they were they used to have to go and find people to help them and then pay them for it. And then they'd still do it very slowly. And this put the other teams at quite a significant disadvantage. Um, on top of that, right, accusations were also leveled of the Americans, as the race continued, of cheating because their car was equipped with wheels that enabled them to drive on railroad tracks, I mean, you know, there weren't roads, so they're all kind of going off roads. The Americans are kind of taking the piss a little bit by, you know, using the much more reliable railroad tracks that spanned the continent here. Um, and it was made all the even it was made you know all the more unfair when the Union Pacific Railway added the Thomas Flyer to its train timetables like it was a real train, so other trains wouldn't get in its way. So. Not a hugely fair, you know, sort of wasn't very even footing there for the Americans with all these uh, all these home ground advantages that they enjoyed. But uh, there was also, there, uh, it wasn't just dissent between the rival teams and their cars, no. There was actually dissent also within the teams themselves. For instance, uh, the Dion team got into some strife. That Norwegian bloke I mentioned before, uh, Hans Henrik Hansen, the bloke who apparently rode to the North Pole, uh, he he got sick of his of, of the leader of the Didion expedition, Georges Bossier de de Saint-Chaffray, quite a name, um, and ended up, as you know, as you would settle any professional dispute at the time, challenging Saint-Chaffray to a duel in order to, you know get over the differences of opinion they were having. But luckily, before they could shoot each other, I mean, he he did say their bodies would be found in the car. Maybe that's what he meant. He was going to bloody kill his teammates. But before this happened, uh, the, the De Dion, uh, Saint-Chaffray, he, he just fired Hanson. He just, not in a literal sense, in a, you know, figurative sense, in a professional sense, he fired Hanson. Instead, um, Hanson jumped ship and joined the Thomas Flyer team, uh, saying as he left that, I could go afoot over the Siberian route and still beat the Didion car. So Hansen's got quite a mouth on him. He didn't end up staying with the American car for very long. He ended up sort of just bailing on the entire race altogether. But uh, I mean, so much for making it across the finish line with his team as he said he was going to because he's, you know, he's already bailed. Anyway, the car's... They continued across the states, all five of them, but a, a fair bit of distance started to open up between all of them. The Thomas Flyer, right, while it was out ahead in Colorado, the, uh, the Zust was behind in Nebraska, the De Dion was in Iowa, and the Motorblock and the Protoss, they were stuck way back in Illinois. Uh, while in Wyoming, the the Thomas Fly had another personnel change. Uh, its driver Monty Roberts, right, left the car. He'd, he'd been driving. He's a quite a famous bloke, Monty Roberts. He'd been in, another, in a number of other events, and he wanted to go and actually take part in a different one. The Paris Grand Prix was on, and he wanted to. He wanted to leave behind this race and go and take part in the Grand Prix, and so he headed off, and instead left the car's mechanic George uh, George Schuster, right. He left him in charge uh and, you know in a comfortable position as well a two-state lead from wyoming onwards uh, that the the thomas flyer team enjoyed and schuster i have to say absolute champ he was he'd been one uh he'd been the one that was keeping the car uh, again i was going to say he'd been one keeping the car on the road but not on the road but you understand what i mean he'd, he'd been keeping the car going he worked so hard on the car he repaired it so many times in so many different places that people started comparing the Thomas Flyer car to the ship of Theseus. By the end, uh, it had been worked on so much that it was hardly the same same car that had you know, set out from New York to begin with. So much of it had been repaired and replaced. Anyway, the rest of the cars, they were hurrying to catch up as best they could, although one of them was having very serious issues, the motor block, which uh, you may remember had old mate Charles Goddard at the helm. Now, this car it's really struggling in desperate need of a, uh, of a of a total mechanical overhaul essentially and gadad he decided that he had to take desperate action in order to salvage his chances in this race and that desperate action proved to be him deciding to cheat blatantly and unrepentantly he attempted to load the car aboard a train was headed to san francisco rather than drive there just loaded onto a train and let the train carry it the rest of the way however luck was not with him he was i mean you know cheaters never prosper and he was caught red-handed by a photographer a photographer caught him in the act as he was trying to put the car on the train obviously these photos came out you know the cheating emerged and the motoblock team was disqualified god He was arrested in his first race, he was caught cheating in the second. It was the end of his career as a famous driver. I mean, it's lucky he never raced in a third race, he might have started a bloody war or something like that. Anyway, with Motorblock out of the race, there are just four cars remaining. The American Thomas Flyer still had a sizable lead, and ultimately it was the one that arrived in San Francisco the uh, first, before the others, in March. It was the first car to ever drive across the United States in winter, a feat that many thought was simply impossible. Um, and after it arrived, uh, after it arrived in in San Francisco, to you know, much much rejoicing, pomp and circumstance, all that sort of thing, it was loaded onto a ship, as was the plan. It wasn't him cheating. It was loaded onto a ship, uh, headed up to which headed up to Seattle, and from there loaded onto a different ship, and taken up to Valdez in Alaska, arriving in April. Now, from there, as I said earlier, the plan was to drive the car across the frozen Bering Strait, right in Alaska. Except there were just a few problems. With this idea. Firstly, getting the car from Valdez to the Bering Strait was going to be a very difficult thing indeed, because, I mean, no one in Valdez had ever seen a car, let alone any kind of road or track that it could be driven, that one could be driven on. The only conceivable way that the car could have been taken from, from Valdez to the Bering Strait would have been to disassemble it completely put all the bits on dog sleds and carry it through the snow that way. But here's the other thing, and this is probably the bit that, you know, caused a, a couple of uh, a couple of listeners eyes to eyebrows to shoot up here. It was not really possible to drive a car across the Bering Strait. It is still not really possible to drive a car across the Bering Strait. The Bering Strait doesn't really freeze over properly. I don't know what the race organisers were thinking, but I think they imagined that, you know, I mean, the whole reason the race was organised for the winter is so so the drivers could drive across the ice between Alaska and Russia. But that's not even what happens. I mean, the Bering Strait, yes, it's cold and it's icy and, you know, much of it does freeze over. But the ice is very thin and usually it is broken up into many small pieces by strong currents it is conceivable that you might be able to cross the bering strait on foot by jumping from you know one bit of ice to the other all the way across but you definitely couldn't drive a car across it unless you i don't know glued it to the ice and then rode it across on a you know like like it was on a barge or something that that i mean even i mean it's just not it's not possible to do this but the entire race was based around the idea that they were just going to drive over it like it was a highway. I mean, that would have been possible at one point in history. Certainly, yes, there used to be a way across. There used to be a, a, an ice bridge that connected these two land masses. But this was, you know... 20,000 years ago or something like that. So they were a little late in getting there. Anyway, this is obviously a disaster for the Thomas Flyer team. They communicate the news back to the race organizers. They make it clear that the Bering Strait is a bit of a no-go and they wait to hear back. Now, the race organizers, they conferred, they decided they would change plans. And the new plan was to put the cars on ships uh, um, and sail them, not just from San Francisco to Seattle, then up to Valdez, but instead from San Francisco to Seattle, then across the Pacific to Vladivostok in Russia instead, and the race would continue. Now, this was all well and good for the other cars that were languishing behind the Thomas Flyer because they go straight from San Francisco to, to Seattle, get a board of ships across the Pacific, and they're good to go. Well, actually, no. Well, I, yeah, I'll stop myself there because one of them didn't even bother going to San Francisco. After hearing about the change of plan, right, the German, the, the German team, the Protoss team, they're halfway through Utah, and they don't even bother going to San Francisco. After hearing that the plan was to, you know, sail from Seattle across to Vladivostok, they load their car up on a train and take a cheeky, you know, a cheeky shortcut up to the Pacific Northwest, up to Seattle to get ready to be shipped across the Pacific. So you're thinking, oh, what's this, buddy, more cheating? No, this time it actually seemed like an honest mistake. They thought that they were being ordered to just go straight to Seattle, and so they made there with all speed. But because of this, they were penalized the Protoss team was penalised 15 days race time for that. I mean, never mind, you know, race penalties these days, seconds, minutes maybe. They were penalised in days. And sort of conversely to this, uh, incidentally, the American Thomas Flyer team they were granted a bonus, fifteen days. They were actually put their, their race time was was given a bonus, an extra fifteen days to make up for the whole bloody you know up in Alaska. I mean, and and you know, fair enough too. They've they've wasted all this time sailing up to Valdez, realizing that they couldn't cross the Bering Strait. Now they've got to sail back down south again. They were the first team to arrive in San Francisco. Don't forget. And they are the last team to board a ship across the Pacific by the time uh, they've returned from Alaska. But ultimately, the five remaining cars, they head across the Pacific. They land in Russia, in Vladivostok. And once they get there, they are met with some bad news. Russian government officials visit the drivers and they say, listen here, you fellas, you've got no chance. You, you need to give up, right? You should load your cars aboard the Trans-Siberian Railway and just go back to Europe in the relative safety and comfort of the of the of the train because there is no chance that you'll be able to drive across Siberia. Drivers go, "Why? You know, what are the poss- what are the possible reasons that could pre- prevent it? Especially as springs coming on, what are the pre- the possible reasons we couldn't we couldn't drive across uh, across Siberia here?" And the Russians give them a brief list. <clears throat> Things like plague and famine and bandits and brigands and mosquitoes and also apparently tigers as well. Things for them to worry about while they drove across the Siberian tundra. Tigers, who knew? Um, but the races, no, nah, they weren't having it. They weren't to be put off. Even the potential of a tiger attack wasn't enough to persuade them, uh, to dissuade them from, uh, from their objective. So, with all of them in Vladivostok... They decided that they would set off again together, just as they did at the beginning of the race, on relatively even footing, except even after ignoring all of the problems that the Russian officials brought up, there was an exciting new problem as well that they needed to overcome, a huge lack of fuel. Now, the team scoured Vladivostok and the surrounding areas for any petrol at all, right? But there just wasn't enough. And for one team, this ultimately was the end of the line. The owner of the De Dion, right, the one remaining French team, the motor block has been disqualified and don't forget the other whoever it was. Is, I mean, I told you to forget about them. I've forgotten about them now. They, they gave up before the, before the end of day one. The final French team, they give up. And from what I could tell, just straight up sold the car then and there. Not something you see every day. Halfway through the bloody Melbourne Grand Prix, you know, some bloke decides he wants to buy one of the cars during a pit stop and so hands over a briefcase of money and off he goes driving down a Formula One car down St Kilda Road. But, I mean, that is what happened. That is what happened. The, The De Dion, it was out of the race. And so the bloke, I mean... You know, Mr. Dion himself, the bloke who owned the car, the, the sponsor of the entire, uh, the entire expedition for, for that team, just decided, no, cut your losses, sold the car to some Japanese businessman, and, uh, and that was that, out of the race. However, the team, right, as you, which you remember was, uh, was led by that bloke, uh, Georges Boussier de, de Saint-Chaffray, they still had a small reserve of petrol left over from the car. And so Saint-Chaffray he attempted to put it to good use. With his boss, you know, when his boss sent the news that he was to give up, he instead took the fuel from the car. He took the fuel that the team had remaining and attempted to bribe the other teams to let him aboard their cars because he still wanted to finish the race. He negotiated furiously with the Americans. He thought the Americans had a very good chance of winning. And so he went to them and said, listen, you fellas, I'll give you this fuel if you let me drive with you, right? But Schuster... He's not doing it. He doesn't like the idea of having this bloke come and join them. He doesn't want to take the, uh, the saint Chaffrey up on this bribe. But saint out of options because he, he he point blank refused to get on the German car. He said it would not look well for a Frenchman to ride on a German machine. But with Schuster not having him, the only other option was the Italians. But the Italians, they weren't too keen on having him either. So he ended up just giving the fuel to the Italians for nothing and then instead had to you know make his own way home back to France by much more conventional means than driving a, a prehistoric car across Siberia. But with the De Dion out of the race, only three cars remained. The Germans, the Americans, and the Italians, they were the only ones left in the race and they all set off racing to be the first across Russia's vast expanse speeding towards Paris. Now, I mentioned that spring had arrived, and you might think, "Oh, great, excellent. That's a bit of good news for them. They're not going to be bogged down by snow and whatever else. Actually, the opposite. Because with the spring thaws came muddy bogs, treacherous swamplands, and all sorts of new new opportunities for the cars to get stuck and, you know, bogged down and mired. So, for much of this journey across Siberia, the cars were measuring their speed in metres per hour rather than kilometres per hour. But still, slowly but surely, they made progress westward. They followed the Trans Siberian Railroad, you know, heading west constantly. And uh, as time went on, the Protoss team crept ahead little by little. Now, they didn't get quite the gap between them and, uh, and the other teams that uh, the Americans had while they were in the US. But nonetheless, the Germans were well and truly ahead as the, uh, the race continued across Russia. The Thomas Flyer team. They kept getting lost, right? Even though they were trying to follow this railway track, you know, they're, they're trying to find the, the best and most efficient way westward. And they didn't speak a word of Russian. They found asking for directions very difficult indeed. And they kept making all these wrong turns. One of them cost them 15 hours before they could get back to where they'd been and continue on their journey. And... Uh, For poor old Schuster, you know, the bloke, you'll remember, the mechanic who was driving it, it got even worse for him. His boss got in touch to tell him that Monty Roberts, that bloke, the famous driver who had wanted to drive in the Paris Grand Prix, he was now available. He was back and ready to go and ready to take over driving. And it was, he, Schuster was told that Roberts would be replacing him as the driver, rejoining the team once they arrived in Europe. And Schuster, as you can imagine, he's absolutely spewing at this. He'd been the one doing the hard yakka. He'd been the one keeping the car running. And now it looks like he wasn't, get, you know, he wasn't going to get to drive across the finish line. He's filthy about it. I mean, and rightly so. This bloke has been the only member of the, of the Flyer team. Uh, of the Thomas Flyer team to take the car. I mean, he's been there every step of the way. He's kept the car going. And now all of a sudden, he's just going to be replaced by this fancy Grand Prix driver, mate. He's not happy about it at all. But even that wasn't as bad as what was going on with the Italians. When it comes to the Brixie this team, well, look, honestly... I don't even know what they got up to because they ended up, not days, but weeks and weeks behind the Americans and the Germans, thousands and thousands of kilometers behind. I actually couldn't find out what happened to them. They seem to have f- faded well and truly into the background, given the much tighter race between the Protoss and the Thomas Fly. May have been mechanical. I, I really have no idea. But the Italians, they're out for the count. And the race is now between the Germans and the Americans. And as both of these teams, as both of them sped westward, you know, finally getting their way out of Russia and heading through Western Europe, through Germany and the rest of it towards France, towards Paris, ultimately the first car to make it across the finish line in Paris was the Protoss team, the German car. And as they drove triumphantly through the streets of Paris, they were met with a very lukewarm reception um, because no one was really that amped about them having finished and you already may have figured out why i'll i'll leave i'll give you a couple of minutes to 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 potentially see if you can remember why people weren't that excited that they arrived i mean they got they arrived in paris on the 26th of july five and a half half months after their departure from new york blazing quick time you know for for this period in history but why wasn't the city out in force to welcoming these conquering heroes? The first team to arrive, you know, why aren't they hailed as the winners? Because they weren't. As alert listeners will have already figured out, the Protoss team weren't the winners at all. The Germans had been penalised 15 days race time back in the United States for making that shortcut to Seattle, remember? Remember? And on top of that, the team that is next expected to cross the finish line is none other than, of course, the American Thomas Flyer team, which had been granted a bonus 15 days to make up for all the business in Alaska. This meant that the Thomas Flyer had a whole month to arrive and still be crowned the winner of the race, which they duly did. Just four days later on the 30th of July, and a much bigger crowd was out to welcome them into Paris, a huge crowd lined the streets to welcome the Thomas Flyer in on the 30th of July as it cruised into the city victorious and I'm happy to say. It was George Schuster at the wheel. Monty Roberts had been gen- he'd been gentlemanly enough here to insist that it be Schuster who drive the car across the finish line. The one who had been there all along, the only Thomas Flyer team member to have gone the whole distance. It was him who drove the car across the finish line after all. However, before he could do this, and you honestly won't believe this bit because, I mean... I'll be straight with you. I did find this in a couple of different sources. I don't know how true it is. It was reported on at the time. Whether it actually took place, it was a bit of you know creative journalism from those there at the time, I don't know. But you won't believe this. Have a listen to this. One final problem, one final ridiculous problem presented itself as the Thomas Flyer came into into Paris. As it drove down the last couple of hundred metres towards the finish line, a French policeman... Stepped out in front of the uh, in front of the car and demanded that it stop. So Schuster he slams on the brakes, he brings the car to a halt, and he says, "What seems to be the problem, officer?" And the gendarme approaches the car and attempted to arrest Schuster then and there because he was driving a car that didn't have any headlights, and it was the law that any car driving in Paris needed headlights. And this car, this car that had been driven halfway across the world, held together with spit. And string didn't have headlights. So it all looked like it was going to come a gutter as the cop was ready to nick Schuster and take him away. I mean, even if he'd done that, right? If, even if the car had been parked out at the front of a cafe for the next month, basically, they still could have driven it across the finish line. But no, luckily, this problem was avoided when a bloke on a bike rode up, approached the car, right? chucked his bike aboard the car with the front wheel facing forward and what was on the front of the bike but a headlight the bike happened to have a headlight he chucked it aboard the thomas fly with the headlight pointing forward and this cop who was being harassed by the crowd landing street the street booing and hissing at him telling him to get out of the way all these crowd you know these all these people they'd lined up to see the end of the race and this cop's being an absolute killjoy The cop decides that discretion is the better part of valour. He says, all right, there's your headlight. No worries at all. And Schuster and the rest of the Thomas Flyer team, along with the bike, what some bloke had thrown onto the car, drove across the finish line and won the race after a gruelling 35,000 kilometre journey. The Thomas Flyer team were world famous for this victory, of course, as the whole race. It had been featured in the papers throughout and they won by a record-setting 26 days, which to this day is still the greatest margin of victory in any motorsport ever. Because of the because of the way that the day the the, the race time day penalties uh, worked out, they beat the German Protos team by 26 days. And this record, you know, again the greatest margin of victory in ever any motorsport event ever. It's probably very unlikely to be broken unless something goes really wrong at you know Bathurst or Talladega which I I can't see a 26 day delay emerging at the bloody Monaco Grand Prix to you know to overtake this record so it is probably it is it is probably very safe indeed anyway uh oh hang on the Italians right sorry forgot about them the Italians um they did cross the finish line they did manage to finish the race they came in a very respectable third uh with a gap of several months they arrived sometime in September uh, a long, long time after the Germans and the Americans, so um, I don't know, I guess we're all winners for having taken part is what I'd say to that team now. I don't know. Anyway, the 1908 New York to Paris race, it ended up having quite a significant impact on the world. It has to be said, you know, obviously, you know, we've had we've had a lot of fun today. We've had some laughs, had some tears, had been ups and downs, had smiles and friends, all sorts of stuff today. Amusing story, good fun to talk about. But this race actually had a real impact. And you might be wondering, well, what what is that impact? Amongst other, I mean, look, admittedly, amongst other factors, this race helped to entrench the idea that the automobile was actually a very reliable and very dependable mode of transport. People began, it changed people's perspectives. They began to see cars as not just a plaything for the very rich, But an increasingly accessible technology that would, of course, in in the fullness of history, revolutionise personal transport and travel. The car at this time, it was a fringe piece of technology. It was something that people were very wary of. It was something that people were unsure about. They didn't know what the potential applications of of these machines were. And this race helped to demonstrate just what the car was capable of and changed the minds of many people as to how they should be put to use, as to how reliable they were in getting you from one point to another. I mean, these things are driven around the world. Of course, you could rely on one of them to get you down the road to the shops, right? And that's one of the many reasons that cars are the dominant transport technology that they are today. But on top of that, it was also a massive, massive boost for the US automotive industry. Before this race, European cars were universally seen as hugely superior to cars built anywhere else. But an American car winning this race changed people's perspectives enormously. And also, very importantly, particularly in the United States and and later on around the world, it brought attention to the terrible state of road infrastructure, right? Road networks in the United States, elsewhere. I mean, once essentially once you left a city, there just weren't roads. There were dirt tracks and whatever else, but there just weren't roads that you could drive on particularly comfortably. And this changed. And it wasn't just this 1908 race that, that changed everything single-handedly. I mean, 1910, the invention of asphalt certainly helped, but it wasn't long before drivable highway networks began being built. For example, the Lincoln Highway, the first ever transcontinental road in the United States, it was built from, can you guess? Well, no, it wasn't built from New York to Paris. Don't. I mean, that, don't be ridiculous. Of course it wasn't New York to Paris. It was built from New York to San Francisco, just like the first leg of the race. This race helped to change the world's perspective of the automobile. The rise of the car as the default form of transport for. Billions worldwide today was sped on by this event over 100 years ago. And as for George Shuster and the car that he drove across the finish line, well, you can still go and visit the car. You can still go and see it. It's on display in Reno in Nevada at the United States National Automobile Museum. But sadly, Shuster himself, he never got the $1,000 prize money that was promised to the winner. He never received the, uh, the payout, although in later years, the New York Times did ultimately pay him the sum at a a banquet that was held in his honour in 1968, when he was 95 years old. And as he pointed out, when he thanked them for the money, he did make mention of the fact that $1,000 wasn't worth quite as much in 1968 as it had been 60 years previous in 1908. But he still, I guess, after a fashion was paid. I mean, look, poor Schuster, at the time, he wasn't even paid anything special by the Thomas Motor Company for his efforts. The, the The company, on behalf of which he'd driven this car halfway around the world, Edward Edward Thomas himself, right the 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 boss of this company he he explained to Schuster that there just wasn't the money for it. Thomas had spent hundred thousand dollars on this car and this race and all the rest of everything that went into it. And so there wasn't any money to reward poor old Schuster for essentially being on the clock for the entire month, 24 hours a day. This bloke was trying to keep the car going, but he wasn't rewarded with anything other than a promise of guaranteed employment with the Thomas Motor Company. In, in, in the boss's words, in Edward Thomas's words, he said, he'll always have a job <clears throat> as long as there is a Thomas company. And that ended up being about four years, because even after this monumental victory, the Thomas Motor Company went under in 1912. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the 1908 New York to Paris race. And it is such a cracker as well. I'm so glad that we've uh, I've had the opportunity to share it with you. Uh, and special thanks once again to Eric Whedon for sending this in as a topic suggestion. Absolutely perfect one. Spot on, Eric. You've, uh, you've nailed it there. Love getting these ridiculous stories from history to dissect on the podcast. So I hope you've enjoyed it. Anyway, that's that boring housekeeping stuff coming way. Of course, halfhouseissue.net. That's the website. You can find old episodes there. The contact form is also found at the website uh, if you want to get in touch like Eric did and send in a suggestion. Otherwise, merch is available from that. Uh, there's a link there that you can follow to the merch shop if you want to go and buy t-shirts or what have you. Uh, and of course the patreon still going uh, half us history uh, sorry patreoncom history. Uh, make sure to subscribe to the show leave a review if you feel like it as well thank you to so much uh, thank you so much to everyone who's left uh, left the kind reviews uh, on itunes and 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 whatnot. it warms my uh, it warms my heart to read how much people enjoy uh, this show so thank you so much to all the people who have done that um and that's it thank you patrons thank you for listening tell your friends tell your enemies tell everyone and Here's the question, of course, posed on Reddit to close out the show. It's a car-related question, as you might imagine. A lot of car chat today. So this one comes to us it comes to us from Reddit user Worthit, who asks, Why is it that you only ever see people with dash cams getting into car accidents?